Speaking of Mother's Day, I know that uh, today's Mother's Day, and I, I, most moms that I know um, want things to change for the better, and they want it to be changed in a hurry. And so I've just got a story that I want to share with you. Um, I hope that you'll enjoy it. This may become my annual Mother's Day story, but I'll leave it up to you. Apparently, there was a fellow who was raised in the hills in the backwoods of West Virginia. And he had lived there his whole life. He had never been outside of this particular area, never been to a big city, never been any place where there were neon lights. Met a gal from the same area, fell in love, got married, and uh, not too long after that, they had a son whom they creatively named Junior. So they lived this particular existence for many years, and when Junior was 16 years of age, the father was starting to get a little worried that Junior one day would have to leave this quaint little area that they lived and head into the city, as most young men were doing that day, to be able to pursue and make a living. So the dad thought it would be a good idea if uh, they saved up for a trip into the city so he could show them the ropes and teach them some things to watch for. Well, three years went by, and finally the day of their trip arrived. They had saved up enough money. They've got all their belongings together. They threw it in the back of the old pickup truck, and they headed into town. As they, near, as they approached the city and they began to see the lights, dad started to get a little nervous, pulled the truck over and said to mama, he said, listen, when we get to the hotel, Junior and I are going to go in and check it out, make sure everything's okay. You wait in the truck, and then we'll come back out and get you. And Mama said that'd be a great idea. So then when they got into the city, they pulled up beside this swanky hotel. Junior and Dad walked up to the front of the hotel, stepped on a mat, and the doors opened automatically. They were just floored by that. They walked through, and they were looking, and for the first time in their lives, either of them had ever seen, for the first time, a chandelier hanging from three stories high. It was magnificent. It was marvelous. It was unbelievable, and it was breathtaking. And as they stood there looking at that, Dad said to Junior, Junior, look over there. And he pointed over there. And there on this side of the hotel was a waterfall and there was a pool and a stream. And beyond that was a mall and people were shopping and going in and out of stores. And they were, just, they were amazed by all this. And as they were looking at Dad, Junior yelled, Dad, look over here. And they looked over there and there was an ice skating rink inside this huge building. They couldn't believe it. Now as they're taking in all these sights, they hear this noise behind them. And they hear this kind of a whirring noise and a click, and, and they, they, they turn around, and they look, and they see this contraption they've never seen before. But apparently this, there was uh, double doors, and there was lights above it, and uh, when it would reach a certain uh, level, all of a sudden the doors would open from the middle, and people would get inside, and the doors would close. They'd never seen anything like this before. They were just amazed. As they were standing there looking at this, they noticed that the doors opened up. This little old lady went over, pushed the button, the doors opened up. No one else was there. She got inside. The doors closed. She disappeared. 20 seconds later, the same doors open up and out walks this beautiful woman. She's about 23 years old. She's gorgeous. She has blonde hair. She's got high heels on. She's got a shapely form and just a beautiful face. And as they're standing there, she walks out and smiles at Papa and Junior. And Papa looks at Junior and says, Quick, Junior, go get Mama out of the truck. <laughs> Mother's Day, maybe? Nah? Now, you ladies remember this when we get to 1 Peter chapter 3 and you want your husbands to change right away, all right? You remember that story now. Oh, it sure beats the other one getting the back of the line, don't you think? All right, well, there you go. That's true. So there you go. I've got to find something to compare it to that's really low on the standard. Anyway, for, uh, on a serious note, for many, uh, Mother's Day is a day of conflicting emotions. On one hand, we want to concentrate and dwell on all the positive things. We want to dwell on love and appreciation, encouragement, the times that we're spent together. Yet on the other hand, it's inevitable that there's also these feelings of, or struggles with anger and bitterness and failure and guilt. 
And uh, there are those moms who I'm sure that are here today who are riddled with guilt. You know, as you think about your family and you think about maybe your marriage or your children, and you're asking yourself questions like, I, I, you know, I could have done more. What would happen if I would have done more? If I'd only done something differently, maybe he or she wouldn't have turned out the way that they did. You know, what did I do wrong? You know, those types of emotions and feelings and that type of guilt that every mom wrestles with at some point in life. Now, you may be a child who's sitting here thinking the same thing as you relate to your own mother. You may be thinking, you know what, why in the world did I put her, or them as parents, why did I ever put her through the things that I put her through? Especially now that you probably have children of your own. <laughs> you can relate to it a little better. Or you've asked yourself the question, you know, why didn't I ever tell her? Why didn't I ever show her how much I loved her? And then some of you are wrestling with some anger and some bitterness, you know. Why couldn't I ever please her? Or why wasn't what I did ever good enough? And so there's all kinds of emotions that are on a day that is a day to be celebrated. And yet, you know what, if we're all honest with ourselves, there are different things that each one of us are wrestling with. And, uh, you know, some, some of us, as we look at all these things, we're, we're prisoners of guilt, our own guilt. And even more unfortunate than being a prisoner of our own guilt is that some of you moms are being held hostage, hostage by children who want to blame you for the wrong decisions that they've made and continue to hold you hostage to their guilt. And we need to recognize and understand something, that there is hope beyond guilt. And that's really the subject that we'll be looking at today as we continue our study. But, you know, as we look at this whole idea of hope beyond guilt, uh, I want to take a moment and lay an important foundation that uh, we'll build upon in our time together because the Bible is filled with reminders of how much God cares for us. And if you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, we find that, you know what, God does have a plan for us. He does care for us. He has plans for our welfare and, our, and our, what our relationship with Him should be about. In Psalm 103, starting with verse 1, we read these words. We read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all our iniquities, who heals our diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. In verse 11, we pick it up where it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. You know, as we go through this, God has tremendous plans for our welfare. He cares for us. He's concerned about us. In those first five verses, we read all these benefits that we see. He pardons our sins or He pardons our, our mistakes. He forgives us. He heals our diseases. He heals that guilt that we'll be talking about. He takes it away from us. He redeems us from the pit. He crowns us with loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies us. And it goes on to say, as at one point in time, He has removed our transgressions from us. And it's important to notice here that that's past tense. It's something that was done in a moment of time. Not only does He do it continually as we confess our failures to Him, but He's done it once for all time when we, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Listen to me. 
when we put our faith and trust in Christ, at that moment in time, he has removed our sins from us forever for all eternity. As far as the east is from the west, the east never meets the west. That's as far as he removes our transgressions from us. It's done at a moment in time, in a moment of history. Uh, Romans 5.1 tells us this, that there is now no condemnation for what? For those who are in Christ Jesus. While we may continue to fail on a regular basis, the reality is this. At a moment in time when you put your faith and trust in Christ, God has forgiven you of your sins, past, present, and future, for all of eternity. You will never be condemned again before God. What a wonderful thought as it relates to the whole idea in the area of guilt that we'll be discussing. We need to recognize and understand it. You know, now some of us, we kind of set our expectations high. We don't meet those expect expectations. Some of us have others setting expectations for us, and we don't meet those expectations either. So we fail miserably at times. And you know what happens with failure? Failure always produces guilt. And so we feel guilty. And here's what also we begin to feel. We feel that if I don't meet these expectations and fail, or I don't meet the expectations of others and fail, you know what happens? I believe, we mistakenly believe, that God is going to dump a dump truck full of judgment on our heads. Now, you know what? Listen to me. God will never do that. But the problem is, why do we think that he will? And it all comes back to this in verse 14. Because we forget that he knows everything about us. And he himself knows our frame, and he himself knows that we are but dust. Do you follow that? Listen to me. And I, 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 don't want, I, can, I, I want to try to make this as clear as possible. God, his expectations are not as unrealistic as ours. His expectations of me are not as unrealistic as my expectations are of myself. He knows me better than I know me. So he does not have unrealistic expectations of us. We're harder on ourselves than God will ever be on us. And as a result, we live lives filled with guilt. God's agenda for us, Jeremiah 29, 11 and 12. For he says, For I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and to give you a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. God's plans for us, for our welfare, is that he gives us a future and he gives us a hope. Isn't that great? He's saying, Chuck, I, I, I want to tell you, I've got plans for you. I've got a future for you. I've got a hope for you that goes beyond the guilt that you're experiencing today. We need to understand that and recognize that. In Lamentations 3, 21 through 26, the prophet Jeremiah reminded himself of God's hope-filled plan by saying this, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, and great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. You know, it's interesting as we look at this, contrary to popular opinion, God doesn't sit around in heaven with his jaws clenched and his arms folded in disapproval with some deep frown on his brow waiting to slam us the first time that we make a mistake. He doesn't do that. And we need to understand that and we need to ask ourselves a question, then why do we do it to ourselves? No, hope beyond guilt begins with an assurance and a confidence, and I, I want to make this as clear as possible. We won't miss this, and that is this. You know what? God is for us. Do you realize that? God is 
for us. Tomorrow when you wake up and you feel like he isn't, tomorrow when you wake up and you feel guilty over the mistakes that you've made in your life, today as you're sitting here and you're contemplating Mother's Day and you reflect upon your past and your children and, and, and your husband and your marriage and all the things that you reflect on as a mom, you know what, let me just remind you and encourage you that God is for us. He is not against us. He is not waiting till we fall so he can somehow or another step in and boot us. He is for us. He's in our corner. And you know what? And sometimes that's not personal enough, but I want you to remind yourself of that. But sometimes we need to take it a step further and personalize it this way. You know what? God may be for us, but I'm just glad God's for me. You hear what I'm saying? Because sometimes we don't include us in us. But every time I say me, I'm included. You know, now that's for some deep theological stuff. But the reality of it is this. God is for me. Hey, repeat that as often as you can to yourself when you're feeling like he isn't. When you're riddled with guilt and you've made a mistake and guilt just slams you to the mat and pins your chest down where you can't get up. Every time you're guilty and you feel guilty, remember this. Hey, you know what? God is for me. Now, understand something here. This isn't some man-centered, psychobabble, positive imagery self-talk. You know what I'm saying? Because sometimes we get, we're, you know, we're buying into all the stuff that we hear around us. Oh, you know what? Oh, I am, I, I am okay. You, know, you see that commercial on ESPN? I love this commercial where they've got all those people that are real fast and they're in that group and they're in that kind of a group think type of thing and Michael Johnson's one of them, Kenny Lofton's another. These are all athletes who are all the fastest athletes in their sport and they're all sitting around and, you know, and, and, and Michael Johnson and the, and the gal looks at Michael Johnson and says, you know, Michael, we can't like you if you don't like you. And that's the kind of stuff that we're hearing. You know, we want to just, oh, I'm okay. You're okay. Hey, you know what? Let me tell you something. No, you're not. <laughs> hey, does anybody that know you disagree? <laughs> Straighten me out. Because I know I'm not either. I'm not okay. You're not okay. That's the theme of the Bible. You're somewhat okay. But that's you saying that. Now ask Mary. What do you think? <laughs> that's what I thought. And that's not what we're talking about here. What I'm talking about is, you know what? God is for me, and this is based on not me, but it's based on God's promises that he made to me. And that's vastly different than going around telling yourself you're okay. No, you're not. None of us are. None of us are righteous. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. All of us are messed up. And it doesn't take long to demonstrate that. And so what we need to understand and to recognize is that, you know, as we go through this, and you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to give you six reasons to be hopeful based on the promises of God and not based on some positive imagery self-talk. This is good stuff because God says it, and you know what? God can't lie. And I like that. God isn't a coach who tells you what you want to hear. God isn't a teacher who tells you what you want to hear, and then you get that grade that you weren't expecting to get. You know, God's not like that. God just tells it the way it is, and we have to deal with it just as it is. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, we pick it up at um, verse 4 is where we left off the last time we were together. We read these words. It says, And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, 
and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word and to this doom they also were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a wonderful section that gives us six reasons to be hopeful. We'll take each one of them one at a time and go through it, but the first reason to be hopeful is this. It says we are living stones in a spiritual house. It says as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, notice we are not the living stone, there's only one living stone and that's Jesus himself, but we come to him like living stones and are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And he goes on. The metaphor that's woven throughout the fabric of this passage is that of a building. See, Christ being the cornerstone and we, his children, being the living stones that make up the building. The same metaphor is used in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 19 through 22. It says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but your fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The first reason that we have to be hopeful is that we are being told that we are being chosen by God. Each time a person gives his life to Jesus Christ, it's as though... Uh, another stone is quarried out of a big, uh, a, a big quarry and, and each of those stones is being fit into a building that God is making himself. The Bible tells us that, that Jesus Christ himself is an owner-builder and he, and he supervises this construction process. Every time a person puts their faith and trust in Christ, it's as though he goes to the quarry and he takes out a rock from that quarry out of the vast humanity of people and he takes that and he chisels it out and he takes that rock and he chisels it and he molds it. The Bible tells us when the temple was built in the days of Solomon that no hammer was ever used on the actual temple site, that every piece of material that was brought was worked on outside of the site and then brought there and fitted into place so there was no pounding and banging and hammering. Hey, anybody who lived near a construction site would have to say, praise God to that. Could you imagine? You would just wake up one day and they would be building a building next to your house and there would be no hammering, no construction, no noise, no nothing, no chains, no, no chainsaws, no, no power drills, nothing. Everything was made outside here, brought together and fitted in. See, this is what God's saying. Every time a person puts their faith and trust in Christ, God goes to that quarry and he takes out a rock and he chisels it and he molds it and he fits it into the body of, into the body of believers. But see, Jesus himself is the cornerstone, the foundation that everything is built upon. And all of us are members of that temple that God is building. We're all individual and we're definitely diverse. All you got to do is look around here and you look at the diversity that's here. We're all different, yet we are all equal. 
because all of us have come from the same place, and that is that mass pull of humanity that was lost before God, and God chooses us, separates us, calls us from that pit of gravel, and he takes us over here, and he's building a tremendous monument. What a wonderful picture that is of the church. And as we look at that, it's very important to recognize something here also. Listen to what he says. And as you come to him, as you come to him, literally it means as you keep coming to him, this is not the first time where we come to him by putting our faith and trust in Christ. This is literally every time that you and I keep coming to him, he reminds us of who we are and who he is. Every time, from a fellowship standpoint, that I come to, to Jesus Christ and I come to him, he reminds me of where I came from and who he is. He reminds me of who you all are and how we all fit together. But we need to continually come to him in order that he can continue to remind us. Probably the best example of that for those of us who are parents or, or, or take a situation where your child or children, they keep coming to you for counsel. They come to you for advice. They come to you for encouragement. They come to you for what? Sometimes they just come to you to know that you're still there. Sometimes they come to you to find out, do you still love me? Do you still care about me? Are you still in my corner? Man, I blew it and I'm filled with guilt and I just need you to tell me it's going to be okay. <laughs> you see the point? And, and why do we go to Him? Why do we go to Him? Because He is the living stone. Why do we go to him? Because Jesus is alive. He's not dead. One of the most tragic things that I hear people tell me is when somebody has passed away and you hear family members going to say, I'm going to go, you know, and, and, I, and, and, this, is, and this is sad and, and it's probably something that, you know, I, I shouldn't even say, but I'm going to say because it's appropriate and it's probably very real to some people. But you have people who will drive to a cemetery on Mother's Day to go and talk to their mom. See, she's not there. God remembers our frame. We're but dust. That's dirt in the ground. That's all. Her spirit is alive somewhere, either in the presence of God or separated from God, depending on whether she knew Jesus Christ or not. There's nobody there. You know how many dead people are in cemeteries? All of them. I mean, that's why they're there. But the point I'm trying to make is this. We go to Jesus because he's alive. We go to Jesus because he can give us counsel. He can give us advice. He can give us encouragement. He can tell us that, you know what? I know you failed, but I forgave you, and I forgave you the day that I shed my blood on the cross. You are forgiven past, present, and future, but I just want to tell you it's okay, and I want to remove that guilt from you. Cast that burden of guilt upon me, and I will care for you. You see that? That's why we continue to go to him as to the living stone. Jesus is alive. And Peter knew it better than anybody because racked with guilt, he couldn't wait to see the risen Savior. And he jumped out of the boat and he ran onto the shore and he just wanted to hear Jesus say, Peter, I know you blew it, but that's okay because you got another chance. Wow, he understood what it meant to go to a risen Savior. Jesus is alive. And that's what makes him different from any other religious leader that's ever walked upon the face of the earth. There's no other religion, quote, in the world that claims that their leader is alive today. Jesus Christ is risen. He's alive. And as a result, we can go to him. And he can reinforce that it's going to be okay. Now, now parents, I, I want to throw something out here because, you know, there are many of us, it's okay to expect perfection from our children, but you must also be willing to accept humanity. You follow that? 
Do you know how important that is? You know how you'll be racked with guilt for the rest of your life if you have a child or children in your home that think they can never live up to your expectations? We have got to be people that raise the bar high and give ourselves something to shoot for, but we also have to be people that are willing to accept humanity and failure as part of that process. I'll give you an illustration. We were at a track meet. Our youngest daughter was running the finals of a track meet for the Century League at Rancho Santiago. And uh, so they were down at the college, and one of the things that was real interesting is, is that, you know, everybody there goes with different expectations. They all have different goals. They set them to a certain standard, you know, and uh, every parent that's there wants their kid to win, but every kid that's there knows whether or not that's realistic or isn't. And so as you look at that, we begin to struggle and wrestle with the fact that our daughter ran a race and she came in second. But the difference was that her goal was, I'm going to do my best versus my goal is to win. If you win and you do your best, great. But if you don't win and you did your best, then you know what, folks? Hey, don't ever lose sight that that's good. And so here her time was the best time she ever ran, but it wasn't good enough to beat the gal who beat her that day. And the hardest thing sometimes as parents to do is to, to keep focused on what's important. And the most important thing is this. Did you do your best? Don't make any excuses. Don't say, well, my ankle is hurt. Don't say, well, the gal was a senior and I was only a freshman. Don't say, well, that's not fair. Oh, by the way, if you've ever said that's not fair, you've got to come back next week. Um, <laughs> but the point is this. You know what? The question is, did you just do your best? That's all. That's all that God expects of us, to do our best. See, what's exciting to me as we look at all this is, you know what? We are living stones in a spiritual house. When we come to Jesus Christ and continue to come through him through his word and through prayer and all these things, he reminds us that he's the cornerstone. He reminds us that everybody else is equal in God's family in this building. There's no one more important than the other person, that he gets all the praise and the glory because he's the owner builder. He's the masterpiece behind all of this. And it was interesting, while I was sitting in a hotel and uh, probably the most gorgeous hotel we've ever been in the world. Unbelievable. Just a beautiful place. It was magnificent. And uh, as I was sitting in this hotel, it was like God put all this together for me. And here's the way that it works. Everywhere that we looked was diversity. There were different shapes and sizes and colors and fragrances and plants and trees and shrubs and everything was so diverse. And yet all of that diversity, there was nothing that was more important than the other. And when it was all fit together, it was the most breathtaking and awesome experience to behold here on earth. It was awesome. It was just gorgeous. It was magnificent. It was beautiful. I talked to the general manager, and as we began to talk, we were talking about the construction process and stuff, and basically here's what he said. He said, you know what? The owner, he goes, the owner built this place to be a monument to himself. Well, he did a good job. <laughs> it was fabulous. And then here I'm thinking, you know what? This assembly of people that God has called out of that pit of, of sin... God has taken all of us. He has put us all together as a building structure. We're all diverse, yet we're all equal. There's only one chief cornerstone, and that's Jesus himself. While we're diverse and there's different fragrances and sizes and shapes and colors, when it's all put together, it's a beautiful, wonderful, magnificent monument to God himself. Isn't that awesome? There is no other way in the world that all of you people and all of us would ever get along and like each other other than the fact that it's a miracle of God. 
You ever sit in your little small group and look around the room and you go, hey, you know what? We would have never accumulated this group of people in this room if it wasn't for the fact we all have one thing in common, and that's Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. We're the weirdest group of people that you've ever seen. Every small group's like that. Every one. Every church is like that. We're a bunch of weird people all brought together through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And when we all fit together and we're, we're a team, it's the most magnificent monument to the grace of God the world will ever behold. We are not individually what we'll ever be. The church is not yet what it's going to be. But we have hope because one day it's going to be a glorious monument to the grace and mercy of God himself. That's good stuff. Second thing is this. Uh, second reason to be hopeful is that, you know what, we are priests in a temple. In verse 5, we're told that we're, gonna, we're uh, separated to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. It goes on in verse 9 and says that you're a chosen people. What? A royal priesthood. Now, what's interesting as we go through this, and it's interesting that, that it has to be brought out because whenever I feel like a failure, when, I, when I'm racked by guilt, uh, I need to remind myself that what I'm a priest here on earth to serve God. Now, for many of us, the idea of being a priest may seem a little strange. For those who have a Catholic background, the idea of being a priest may almost seem to be sacrilegious. So we need to understand what God is talking about as far as being a priest or a holy priesthood. The word holy, we've already learned, means what? To set apart. The word priest is a person who is set apart for what? To serve God. So all that a holy priesthood is this. People that are called out from that, that rock pit of sin, they're separated... And they are separated for what? To serve God. That's what a holy priesthood is all about. Now, in the Old Testament, um, those set apart from the rest of the, of the uh, nation of Israel were of the tribe of Levi. They were separated from the rest of all, of, uh, all the rest of God's family. They were set apart. They were holy. They were consecrated. They were designated for the purpose and the role of ministering as priests. No other tribe, no other person qualified if they weren't of the tribe of Levi. They were set apart. So Israel had a priesthood. Now the interesting thing was certain responsibilities. They all ministered. They all have different responsibilities, but they all ministered under one high priest. So there was one high priest and many, many, many thousands of priests that all had different ministries, but they all served under one high priest. You follow this? Don't don't lose sight of this because this is what he's trying to get across to us. And so as they all worked together, they worked together in unison under a high priest to glorify God. It was a privilege and an honor to be a priest. Now he also says that we are a royal priesthood. Now this has to do with the, 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 has to do with the heavenly priesthood of Jesus Christ. Because no king ever served as a priest. You follow this? No king ever served as a priest. The one king, Uzziah, who tried to serve as a priest... Azariah and 80 other priests came into the temple as Uzziah was there trying to offer sacrifices to God because he knew he was the king and he thought he could do anything and that he was above the law, that he could do what he wanted to do. I'm going in and I'm going to go ahead and offer sacrifice to God. God said that you're not to enter that place, that you are not qualified. So Azariah and 80 priests, strong, studly dudes, went in to physically remove the king from the temple. Before they got there, God smote them as they say, with leprosy. They all backed away and they let him walk out. God taught him a lesson. They, he wasn't to be there. Now the interesting thing is this, and here's how it all ties together. 
Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews tells us, is our high priest. While the priest came to offer sacrifices to God, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 10, it's impossible for the, for, for the blood of bulls and goats to forgive sin. But Jesus shed his blood once for all on the cross, and without the shedding of his blood, there was no remission of sin. So Jesus fulfilled all that sacrificial system when he was sacrificed on the cross for the sins of all the world. And it says he died once and once for all of mankind. It was done at that moment in time. That's why he removed our transgressions from us at that moment in time. So Jesus becomes our high priest. It gets even better than this. Now he becomes our high priest and all of us are priests who serve under him to glorify God. And now we don't have to go to a priest who was a mediator in the old temple. The priest would mediate between God and man. The priest would offer up sacrifices to God for the sins of the people. The priest would do what God's called him to do. We don't have to do that anymore. According to the book of Timothy, in the second chapter, we, we learn this. You and I, if we believed and trusted in Jesus Christ, now have direct access to God himself through the person of Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. We don't have to go through any mediator anymore. We can go direct to God. This is an awesome picture of what it means to be a priest today. We can go to God. Now, it says that we're to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Some of those things are this. Um, one sacrifice is our bodies are spiritual sacrifices. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your what? Your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, uh, service of worship. And not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we'll know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Our sacrifice that we offer today isn't a goat, isn't a bull, it's ourselves. We offer ourselves as a spiritual sacrifice that's pleasing to God. The praise of our lips is a spiritual sacrifice pleasing to God. The money that God blesses us with as we give to Him and to His worth, it's a spiritual sacrifice that's blessing, it's a blessing to God. As we give up material things, it's a spiritual sacrifice, blessing to God. We are priests offering sacrifices to God, not for the forgiveness of sins, but because we're grateful and we thank Him for what He's done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Even those who we win to Christ are spiritual sacrifices offered up to God through Jesus Christ. And that makes Him acceptable to God. We need to recognize that, you know what? We are priests in the same temple. We are a holy priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. And you know what? I don't know how anybody can feel any guilt at all when they recognize and understand how important a privilege it is to be called a priest before God. Those in the Old Testament, King Uzziah, wanted the privilege of being able to go into the temple and serve God and offer sacrifices. We have that privilege every day. What a wonderful truth that is. The third truth is this. We are a chosen race. It says you're a chosen people or a chosen race. You know, race has been throughout the history of man a huge issue. It's a cause for division. It's a subject of heated and ongoing discussion and debates. And on occasions, it's the heart, at the root and the heart of murder and violence. And we need to recognize and understand something. You know what? Let me just make this as clear as possible. God's perspective of race basically boils down to this. There are only two races of people. There are those who are part of the lost human race and there are those who are part of the chosen human race. Now the lost human race is that big quarry of, of rock and in that quarry there's going to be whites and blacks and reds and yellows and browns. There's going to be rich and poor and illiterate and educated. There are going to be those who have accomplished great deeds here on earth and those who have done nothing. They're all going to be part of that mass of humanity. 
And you know what? And those who are chosen, the called out from there, are going to be the same thing. People that God reaches in and pulls out and He chooses us and He calls us. And you know what? And they're going to be black and white and yellow and red. And they're going to be people that have been educated and illiterate. And they're going to be people that made money and didn't. They're going to be people that drive fancy cars and don't. They're going to be people that have nice watches and those who don't have any. And they're all going to be called out and chosen. And those are the only two types of people that God recognizes. There are those who are lost and those who are found. There are those who are dead in their sins and those who are alive in Jesus Christ. Am I making this as clear as possible? That's the only two types of people there are on the face of the world. That's it. So we need to understand something. This whole race issue as we look at it, we need to recognize and understand there are going to be saints and those who ain't. That's it. Grasp it for what it's worth because it's important that we get that point. Now, the question is, why did God choose, for example, the nation of Israel out of all the peoples on the face of the earth? It's the same question you've got to ask, why did God choose me from that big pit over there of all the people that are dead in their sins? Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 8 tells us why. For you are a people holy, separated, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, what? Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured people. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and he kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he, made, that he brought you out of a mighty hand, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why did God choose Israel? Because they were strong? No. Because they were numerous? No. Because they were educated? No. Because of the color of their skin? No. Because of their mental or moral superiority? No. Let, let me tell you something. God chose them. Why? Because he chose them. Because he loved them. Not because they were worthy. Not because they were better. Not because they were special in any way. They became special because he chose them. It's important to understand something here. Why did God choose you? Why did he choose me? Because I'm special? I doubt it. Because you are? I doubt that too. He chose you because He chose you. He said in John, Hey, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. You didn't search your whole life for God and His love. He searched you out. He came and, and He sent His Son to seek and to save that which was lost. We had this, this sin quarry over here and all of us are living in this vast pool of humanity, this cesspool of humanity. And you know what? And He went in Himself and He brought us out. Why? Because he chose to love us. Get something straight here. You will never get to heaven because you've lived an oppressed life here on earth. You will never get to heaven because you lived a life of privilege here on earth. The only way that you and I get to heaven is that God reaches down into the cesspool, we grab His hand, we thank Him for the the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, we put our faith in Him, we reach out, and He pulls us out of the cesspool of sin, and the only way we get to heaven is through Him, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what? I don't know how to tell us any clearer. You know, the color of a person's skin will never save them nor exclude them from the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ alone saves us. Now, we need to recognize and understand that because, you know, being chosen by God says more about Him than it does about us. You follow that? Being chosen by God says more about God than it does about us. 
and it always has and always will. He wants you to be on his team, not because you bat 400 or because you've got something to bring to the party. You understand that? And listen why this is important. God does not choose us because we have anything to offer. Therefore, when we fail, he doesn't cut us from his team because we're not delivering what he thought would bring. Got that? This is so important. This is not like the world that we live in. Hey, I'm going to choose you to be on our team because I heard you bat 400, and then when you go 0 for 1,000 and you're batting 0, 0, 0, I'm going to have to cut you because you don't have anything to offer anymore. God says, you have nothing to offer to begin with. I chose you to be on my team because I chose you to. So when you fail and you're riddled by guilt, don't even worry about it because you never had anything to offer to begin with. Doesn't that free you up? Frees me up. I think it's great. Now, here's another thing I want to bring up. Some of the dumbest, meanest, cruelest, racist statements and attitudes that I have experienced while I've been here on earth have come from Christians. And let me tell you something. You would think that we'd know better because God is not like man. He doesn't judge by outward appearance, but he judges by the heart. We need to become people who do not judge others because of their skin color or because of what they look like. But we need to be people who judge people based on their words and based on their deeds and that alone. God help us to understand that because the greatest hindrance toward reaching other races with the gospel of Jesus Christ is our racist attitudes toward them. There's only two types of people on the face of the earth. Those who are lost and those who are found. Don't ever forget that. And I'll tell you what, when you understand that, you'll never have any guilt and you'll never be riddled with guilt because of the way that you judged another based on what they look like instead of based on what they've said and what they've done. God help us to realize that. Number four, we're running out of time. Here we go quick. We're also a holy nation. This is pretty cool. What this means basically is this, that you know what? Our citizenship isn't here on earth. It's in heaven. God's people, our citizenship's in heaven. So you want to talk about uh, you know, hope beyond guilt, and that's this. God has called you and I to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Now, when I'm feeling bad about myself, for whatever reason that is, you know, and I stop and I remember that, you know what, I'm a living stone fit into this temple, that, you know what, that God's taken me from this quarry of sin and pulled me out of that, and I, and I look at all these blessings that I have that I'm a priest here to serve God, and, man, I'm feeling privileged. You know, another thing is, what, what I'll feel privileged is this, that you and I are ambassadors. We are ambassadors to Jesus Christ. I'm reading a great book about a guy who was the ambassador to Spain, and he talked about how, as he was taking this, this post that he had been given, how there was this huge parade that went down the streets, and here he was representing the United States. Here was, you know, he was an ambassador to the, for the United States. And I thought, you know what? We're a holy nation. Our citizenship's in heaven. We are here, sent by God, as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That's worth strutting a little bit about. We've got a responsibility. That's good stuff. And as we look at that, we need to recognize and understand what a privilege that is. And it even gets better than that. Listen to this. We're also a people of God's own possession. We're a people of God's own possession. Now listen to this. Possessions of powerful, wealthy, or famous people, no matter how common, become very valuable. Listen to this. Napoleon's toothbrush sold for $21,000. 
Could you imagine? I'm going to bring mine next week, see how much I can get for them. $21,000. Paying $21,000 for some, someone's cruddy old toothbrush. Hitler's car sold for $150,000. Winston Churchill's desk, a pipe owned by C.S. Lewis, sheet music by Beethoven, a house owned by Hemingway, at Sotheby's auction of Jackie Kennedy Onassis, listen to this, her, her fake pearls, sold for $211,500. That's why I buy my wife fake stuff. It's, it's, it's worth so much more than you know, we think. JFK's wooden golf clubs. Wooden golf clubs went for $772,000. Wooden golf clubs. Not even titanium. This is unbelievable. Here's a good one. Singer Marshall Chapman has a chair fit for a king. Not just any king, but the king. But not the king of kings, by the way. The country rock singer paid $3,250 on Friday for a wooden chair that Elvis Presley, Presley purportedly once used at a Piedmont Steakhouse in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Listen to this. She fell in love with Elvis in the second grade. She went for the, to the principal's office for playing, for playing Elvis on a ukulele with the school janitor. No one is sure which chair Elvis actually used when he visited the restaurant after 1955, but Chapman said she, she's keeping the faith that the king actually reclined in the one she bought. You just got to believe in something. I don't believe in Santa Claus anymore, but I believe in Elvis sat in this chair. A hunk, a hunk, a burning. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Here's, a, here's someone who paid $85,000. A casino paid 85000 bucks for a shirt worn by outlaw Clyde Barrow. A bullet-riddled, blood-stained shirt, 85000 bucks. All I know is this. The next garage sale we have, we're jacking the prices. <laughs> What's the whole point? If that stuff was valuable because it was owned by celebrity people here on Earth, let me ask you a question. How much more valuable are you and I who have been bought and paid for and are the possessions of God himself? Wow. That's good, huh? I like that. We can go on, but we have no time. Number six. And we are people who have received mercy. We are people who have received mercy. I like that. We've received mercy. We once were not a people, but now we're a people of God. We once, in verse 10, did not receive mercy, but now we have received mercy. The Bible says that God is rich in mercy. Let me ask you something. If you're feeling a little guilty because of past failures and past mistakes and people are holding you captive to that guilt because they keep reminding you of it, can I just make a suggestion? Give yourself the best Mother's Day present you could ever give yourself. And that is go to God who is rich in mercy and just ask him to remove that guilt from your heart. God who is rich in mercy. I like that. And you know why God did all of this? Let, let me close. Look in your Bibles for just one second. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2 and we'll close on this. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why did God do all this? You ever wonder? Why did God, why did you choose me? Why did you take me from this mess that I was in? Why did you ever come actively and seek me? Why did you send your son to die for me? Why did you do that? You ever wonder why? Here's why. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
know, we, we own our own business, and one of the things that we learned a long time ago was that, you know, it really helps to promote it and advertise in some way. So we've got banners at baseball fields. We've got signs on our trucks. We've got shirts and T-shirts that are made for the guys that are out working on jobs. Um, you know, we advertise in the newspapers occasionally. I mean, th th there are different ways that we can get our name out into the industry so that people know that we exist. You know, th that's just part of trying to bring about people to do business with us. You know what God says? He says, Chuck, the only thing I ask you to do, since I've done everything else, I've reached out in the cesspool and pulled you out. There's nothing you have to offer. I'm never going to cut you. You're on my team forever. It's an eternal position. The only thing that I ever ask you to do, I've done everything. The only thing I want you to do is that I want you to proclaim the excellencies of him who have called you out of the darkness and into the light. I just want you to tell people how rich in mercy and how deep my love is for human beings. That's all that we have to do. Do you realize that? Can I ask you a question? Is that that much to ask? Is that too much to ask? You ever do something for someone and you did it just because you love them and they're blown away by it and they don't know how to respond or what to say? Sometimes you almost have to tell them, you know what? Just say thank you. That's all. Thank you. And thank you. <laughs> That's all God wants us to do, folks. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are grateful. And we do thank you for calling us out of the darkness into a marvelous light. For taking, out of, taking us out of that rock quarry of sin and to shape and mold us into this assembly, this collection that you call your church. God, help us to remember that though we are diverse in, in, in many members, there's only one temple and you are the cornerstone that was laid. God, help us to see that we are priests here on earth to minister under the great high priest, Jesus Christ that we're here to offer spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing and acceptable to you. God, help us to see that we are chosen race. Help us to become people who don't look at the externals or the outward appearance of a human being and judge them based on skin color or in some other external way, but to look at the quality and the character of their heart and to judge people based on their words and on their deeds. God, help us to see that we're a chosen nation, that we're ambassadors for Jesus Christ here on earth, and our citizenship is in heaven, and one day we will return there to be with you forever. God, help us to see that you are a God who wants to remove all the guilt from our life as you've removed the sin on that day that we trusted in Christ. Help us not to be held captive and hostage by those around us who want to continue to blame us for their failures and their own wrong decisions. Help us to be people that cast all our burdens upon you because you care for us. God, help us to be people that realize what a great and glorious thing it is to be one of God's own possession and how valuable we are because we were bought with a huge price. And that was the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. God, we just thank you that we were once a people who had received no mercy, but now we have received mercy and we are called a child of God to those who believe in Jesus Christ. God, help us to proclaim before this world the excellencies of you who have called us out of darkness into light. And may you get all the praise and the glory in Christ's name. Amen.